Good morning. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Aaron and I am part of the eldership team here at Grace Church. Now, as I'm sure I don't need to remind you, about four months ago, we began a period of lockdown, which fortunately we are finally and quite slowly coming out of. Now, I'm not a huge fan ordinarily of social media, but, but one huge benefit of it is that it's meant that we've been able to keep in contact uh, with our friends and see what people are getting up to in their homes. One thing I noticed uh, that a number of friends of mine are doing is that they are getting on with DIY type projects. They're building stuff around the home, maybe they're fixing things that they've been meaning to fix for quite some time. Now in the UK, there is a phrase for people that are no good at soccer. What you'd say is that they've got two left feet. Now when it comes to DIY, I have got two left hands. But my wife, Natasha, is a wonderful woman, and she is very encouraging to me. And, you know, she'll say things to me like, you can do this, Aaron. I've got faith in you. But I know that her faith in me only goes so far. Because as we're, we're watching this right now on our sofa, uh, along with many other people, we're, we're probably sat quite comfortably, not even thinking about the act of, of sitting on the sofa. It's, it's your sofa. It's never let you down before. You sit on it every day. But if I emerged this morning from the garage with a wooden chair held aloft that was made by these two left hands, and I asked Tash to sit on it for the remainder of the service, I'm pretty sure we would see the limits of her faith in my DIY abilities. And rightly so. Whilst my feelings would be hurt maybe a little bit that she declined this offer, it probably wouldn't hurt me as much as it would hurt her if she actually took me up on sitting on the chair. Now what this does is it demonstrates that our faith is always shown, is proven by our actions. We can say that we believe something or that we think something uh, with very little thought of the consequences. What we really believe, what we really think, where we really place our faith though, is shown by what we actually do. And we're going to consider this this morning as, as we open up the Bible uh, again in the book of Luke, and we're going to continue on from where we have done in the, in the series. So we're in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people 
why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged him to tell no one what had happened. So the first thing that we see here is that the people of Galilee were expectant. We read that in the first verse. We read in verse 40 that the crowd welcomed him and that they were waiting for him, which of course is in great contrast from where he had just come. The passage that we read last week where we read that that Jesus had cast out a legion of demons from a single man and the response of the people of Gadarenes was one of fear. They wanted Jesus to leave their midst, which is interesting, isn't it? For whatever reason, the people of Gadarenes did not respond to Jesus in faith, but rather they begged him to leave their presence. So Jesus did exactly as they asked, and he got in a boat and he headed back to Capernaum on the shore of Galilee, which, as I've said, is where we see him arriving here and where we see him met with a crowd that is full of faith. They are excited to see what he's going to do. And this nicely sets the stage for what is about to happen. So let's just read these first few verses again, verses 41 to 43. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. What we see here are two quite desperate situations. On the one hand, firstly, we see Jairus. Now, as we've read, he is a ruler of the synagogue, and he has come to Jesus, and he is imploring him to heal his 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter. She's not just sick, but it says that she's dying. She's at death's door. Now, as a father of three children, I can only imagine the pain, I can only imagine the desperation that this man must have been experiencing. So rather uh, unsurprisingly, sorry, he's not approaching Jesus in a half-hearted manner. He's throwing himself at Jesus' feet and he was begging him to save his daughter. And of course, remember, 
as a ruler of the synagogue. He would have been held in high regard by those in the community. He would have been seen as a man of dignity. But as we see here, his need to have his daughter healed was such that he was willing to give all that up and be humbled by throwing himself down before Jesus. And then next we read of, of the woman that had been bleeding from the womb every day for 12 years. I just take a moment to consider that. At the, at the very least, she would have been physically drained. She would have been exhausted from this. And of course, remember this is over 2,000 years ago. Remaining hygienic, feeling clean, would have been a challenge every single day. But more than this, there was also the, the cultural and the religious stigma that would have been attached to her bleeding. Because there are three things in Jewish daily uh, life that would make a person ceremonially unclean. One of them is touching the dead, one of them is, is leprosy, and then the third one is menstrual bleeding. The fact is that, that this woman would not be able to touch anyone or to be touched by anyone, which of course would mean she would be separated from her friends. It means that, that she ultimately would have been ostracized for the past 12 years from her society. And of course it also means that she would not have been able to go to a place of worship. For 12 years she would have felt separated from her friends, she would have felt separated from her community, and she would have felt separated from God. So again, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us to read that she was desperate. That as we read, she had spent all her living, everything she had, on doctors in the hope of healing. These two people, Jairus and, and this unnamed woman, they both knew deeply that they needed help beyond anything that they'd needed before. And their response to this need was to act in faith. Jairus approaching Jesus, pleading to him to come to his house, and the woman, by reaching out and touching his garment. Again, as we read in verse 44, I'm just going to read that again. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. This is amazing, isn't it? On touching just the fringe of his garment, the hem of his garment, the woman was immediately healed immediately. There was no delay. This happened straight away. And we see that she approached Jesus from behind, maybe secretly, probably because she felt unworthy to approach him directly in the way that Jairus had. And of course, as I've said, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. So she shouldn't have been touching anything. So no doubt her plan would have been to remain inconspicuous touch Jesus' garment, hope that she'd be healed, and then allow the crowds to pass on, to leave her alone, unnoticed, so that she could go back home and lead a normal life. But that's not quite how it played out, is it? Let's carry on with verses 45 to 47 and remind ourselves what happened. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, 
she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now here we see Jesus asking the question, who was it that touched me? And it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And it makes you wonder what was his motivation for asking this because I'm pretty sure he knew exactly who had touched him because in response to the faith that we see this woman exercising, we see that she was immediately healed. So what is going on here? Why indeed is Jesus asking this question? Well, I think what Jesus is actually doing is he's trying to coax the woman into making a confession, a public confession of the faith that she has just exercised. Essentially, he's trying to bring the woman out of hiding. But of course, it seems to the human eye like a bit of a ridiculous question. As Peter says, he's, he's like, you're, you're surrounded by crowds. Everybody's touching you. How can we possibly work out which specific person you're talking about? What Jesus had perceived was a woman reaching out and touching him and receiving power as a result of doing so. Now, whilst clearly the focus of these verses are on the woman, I think there is a warning that we can heed from the crowds. We can be around Jesus. We can be in the crowd. We can be going to church. We can be doing all of the supposedly right things, but we could never be truly reaching out to Jesus in faith, never really responding to his grace. Matthew 7 amplifies this point. Verse 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As we read here, it is not the primary desire of God for us to do mighty works in his name. Rather, he wants to know us. He wants us to respond to his magnificent grace towards us in faith by reaching out to him. This is the will of the Father who is in heaven that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 7. And this is precisely what we see from the woman that reached out and touched his garment. She's responding in faith. But it's interesting to see that when Jesus asked the question, who touched me? She said nothing because we read all denied it. So that includes her. And you can imagine what's going on in her mind, can't you? She's at this kind of crossroads thinking, well, She's taken this leap of faith and she's been healed. She's reached out to Jesus. But then she's probably thinking, well, the penalty for deliberately making someone unclean is death. And, of course, this woman would, would not have the cross as hindsight in the same way that we do. She would not have um, the, the Gospels to read, the letters from Paul to read, to understand who Jesus is. She wouldn't have understood maybe the full extent of his grace so the temptation for her at this point, despite having been healed, would be to leap in the other direction. It must have been a pretty strong temptation. But what maybe she lacked in theological understanding, she made up for 
in having experienced the love and the power of Jesus in her healing. Indeed, reading verse 47, it would seem as though she knew that Jesus knew. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This woman came forward trembling and reminiscent of Jairus only a a few verses ago, she humbled herself at the feet of Jesus. And in what would ordinarily be considered an act of shame, she told the story of why she had done what she had done. And more importantly, the story of how Jesus had healed her. So the question is, why did Jesus insist on this public confession? And I think there's two options, really. The first option is that he wanted everybody to see his demonstration of power, his his miraculous work. Now, I don't think this is likely to be the case. And my reasoning for this is this. A couple of chapters ago in Luke 5, Jesus healed a leper, and his words to him were to tell him to say nothing to anybody. And before that, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had not allowed demons that he'd cast out of a man to proclaim the truth of who he is. And actually later, as as we read in, in this portion of scripture here, Jesus commands Jairus and his wife to tell no one when he raises their daughter from the dead. It would be, at the very least, inconsistent for Jesus to draw attention to this act as a demonstration of his power. So given this, I think it's not the miracle that Jesus wanted to highlight, but rather he wants to highlight the woman's faith. He wanted her to declare her testimony, her story of this event. And I think there's a phrase that I've heard people use, and you may have heard people use, you may have even used it yourself, of saying, my faith is a a personal thing. It's between me and God, which sounds very reasonable. It sounds like a a reasonable thing to say, but but it's absolutely not biblical. Matthew 10, 32, we read this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The biggest thing in this woman's life up until this point, the the thing that she had spent all her time seeking healing for, that she'd even invested all her money in, it it was this bleeding, it was this condition that she was suffering from. So now that Jesus had healed her of this, it follows that he would replace this condition as a central thing in her life. It follows that she would now have the courage to share the truth of what Jesus had done for her with the crowd. Put simply, a desire to tell others is a natural response of having received the grace of God. Okay, the next verse, I think, is is just amazing. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
Now, clearly, her faith made her well in, in the sense that the bleeding stopped. That had happened several verses earlier. But I think Jesus, when he says well, he means it in another sense here also. Because the New Testament Greek word that Jesus uses for the word well is the word mesa, which is a, a different word to the Greek word hazir that he'd used in the previous verse when he was talking of her physical healing. More than this, the word mesa is actually translated 12 times in the book of Luke alone as save or saved. As we've just read in Romans 10.10, 10, belief and confession often go hand in hand to bring about saving faith, which is what appears to have happened to this woman. She came to Jesus looking for physical healing. She went away with something so much more valuable. Okay, let's turn back to the passage. We'll pick it up from verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Just to remind ourselves, before healing this woman, Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, who was clearly extremely unwell. And, and then whilst speaking to the woman about her healing, so he'd obviously taken some time out to do that, a servant from Jairus' house comes with the, the terrible news that, that it's too late, that Jairus' daughter had, had succumbed to her illness. She was dead. Now, I can only imagine the grief that must have overcome Jairus. Now, it's possibly a grief that would have been mixed with anger. If Jesus hadn't been delayed by this woman, whose condition was nowhere near as bad as his daughter, would be maybe what he was thinking, then maybe Jesus would have made it in time. We're at this place where all hope appears to be lost. But Jesus' response is magnificent. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He then goes on to say, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. But we see the mourners laughing cynically, because they know that the girl is dead, that she's passed away. You can imagine what must have been going through their minds about Jesus. Who is this crackpot? He can't even tell the difference between someone who's dead and who's asleep. But Jesus remains undeterred, and he enters the room with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with Jairus and his wife. Again, I think this just goes to show that Jesus did not want a crowd in order to perform a miracle. That's not why he was doing this. Rather, he is moved by compassion. He simply wants to meet this family in their need. And without a fanfare, he 
takes the girl by the hand and all he says, he simply says, child, arise. And immediately we see that her spirit has returned to her and she is raised from the dead. What a moment. But up until this point, for everyone else, the situation is hopeless. The story is over. The battle is lost. But not to Jesus. We see here that even death is not the end of the story. Because Jesus has dominion. He has power. He has rule over all things, including life and death. And of course, this event, this demonstration of his power over death, points us to what is to come in Jesus himself being raised from the dead. And of course, Jesus being raised from the dead points towards the fate of all believers. We see this in, in one of the other New Testament accounts of Jesus when he's raising people from the dead and where he instructs Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Now, just before he does this, we see he's having a conversation with Lazarus's sister, Martha. Now, this is recounted in John 11, 21 to 27, so I'm just going to read that now. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In him, as believers, we have eternal life. He is bigger than any situation that we may face, even death, which is why faith in him should always trump fear. As he said to Jairus in verse 50, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe, because trust in Jesus is the polar opposite of fear. Indeed, it is because of this that whilst faced with persecution to a level that, that probably very few of us listening will ever know, Paul was able to write in Romans 8 verse 35 this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Because of his dominion over all things, because of his dominion over death, the one thing that we should be truly fearful of, separation from Christ, is the one thing that we are promised will never happen. If our faith is in him, as it is for Jairus, as we see that it is for the woman. So how do we know 
that our faith is truly in him. Well, I think the stories of Jairus and the story of this woman give us this answer. As we've seen this morning, the first thing that each of them did was they recognised their need for Jesus. The exact same should be true for us. And you may be thinking, well, my need for Jesus is is nowhere near as great as theirs. My my family are well. I'm I'm in good health. I, I need Jesus, but only a little bit, just for a, a, a portion of my life. Now I want to be really clear on this. This is possibly the most dangerous thing you could ever believe. Our greatest enemy is not poor health, as it was for the woman. Our greatest enemy is not even death, as we saw for Jairus's daughter. Our greatest enemy is sin, which leads to eternal death. This is what it tells us in the first half of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And just like the woman who, despite all her efforts, was unable to do anything to stop her bleeding, there is nothing by our own strength that we can do to halt the flow of sin in our lives. We are powerless in our own strength, by our own power, in our own might against sin. But the second half of Romans 6.23 gives us the answer. As we've just read, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As much as it is for those we've read about this morning, our need for Jesus is a desperate one. So this is step one. We need to recognise we need Jesus, just as much as Jairus did, just as much as this woman did. But of course, recognising our need for Jesus is not enough. If I've got a, a nasty toothache, then the answer to getting it fixed is not to go, oh, I need a a dentist, and then the pain goes away. Rather, I have to act, I have to book an appointment, I have to go to see the dentist, I have to be strapped into the chair. And as anyone who's got a a kind of raging toothache or has had a raging toothache will know, you don't dilly-dally in the process. When you're going through this, you go to see the dentist right away. You do it out of desperation, which as we've seen in the two accounts this morning is how we should respond in our recognition for our need for Jesus. We need to humble ourselves before him. We need to worship him, not just as our saviour, which of course he, he, he so marvellously is, but as our Lord, as the one who has dominion over death and life and our lives. Where there is sin in our life, we must repent of it. We must throw ourselves upon his mercy. We must bow down at his feet and be dependent upon him. And as we see with the woman, by by his magnificent grace, he will make us well. And like the woman, we must be ready to share the truth of what Jesus has done for us, even if it's at personal cost. For those of us here that are believers, if we do not share the truth, if we're unwilling to share the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we need to ask ourselves the question, why? If it's because our fear of man is greater than our faith in God, then we probably need to go back to step one. And we need to see again our need for Jesus. Because when we truly grasp this, our need for man's approval will diminish into the right place. And finally, we must continue to trust in Jesus at all times, in all things. It would have been so easy for the parents of the little girl just to say no to Jesus 
to, to give up on him when they heard that their daughter had died just to say enough is enough just as those around him had but they didn't they held firm in their trust in him and we must do the same this doesn't mean that we won't face hardship struggle suffering or even death but through the hardship struggle and suffering Jesus promises us what he promised the woman suffering from her bleeding do not fear only believe and you will be well because in going to the cross Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death meaning that no matter what may happen if we continue to trust in him we will have eternal security in the light of this we can confidently proclaim all will be well so maybe this morning you're facing a problem with your health it's looking bleak it seems like there's very little light at the end of the tunnel Jesus is promised to you do not fear only believe and you will be well or maybe this morning you are facing job uncertainty you don't know what you'll do if you lose your job maybe you've already lost your job you're overwhelmed of thoughts of where you're gonna live how you're gonna feed your family Jesus is promised to you do not fear only believe and you will be well whatever it is this morning that is causing your heart to tremble Jesus's promise do not fear, only believe, and you will be well. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for who you are and for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you that you call us to you to come and reach out in faith towards you. Lord, that you, you will meet us in our needs, Lord, that you will give us the grace that we require. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the truths of our need for you, Lord, where maybe we're tempted to think things aren't so bad, I'm doing okay on my own. I pray, Lord, that you would jolt us out of such thinking, Lord, and that we would see the truth of the reality of the effects of sin in our life, Lord, and that we would turn to you in faith. And for those of us here, Lord, that are, are struggling in faith, we believe you, Lord, but we're wavering, that we're maybe struggling to, to fully uh, hold on to you during these difficult times. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all that we need to completely trust in you and to know the truth that in eternity we are secure. We are in your hand. We have nothing to fear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.